This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center of Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next few weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care for your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Kempinen, a Mayo Clinic genetics counselor, and we will be discussing navigating the genetic testing world, the role of a genetics counselor. Jennifer Kempinen is a certified genetics counselor in the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. She began her career in 2011 at Mayo Clinic as a genetic counselor, and in 2014, she transitioned to a clinical position in the Department of Clinical Genomics and served as a genetic counseling supervisor until 2019. During her time in clinical genomics, she provided direct patient care for specialties, including oncology, general genetics, diagnostic odyssey, neurogenetics, and cardiology. In 2019, she began her role in CIM, supporting genomic innovation through initiatives such as the Program for Rare and Undiagnosed Disease, what we call PROUD, Genetic Testing and Counseling Unit, GTAC, and Individualized Medicine Genetics Research. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate today. I cannot tell you how important I think it is that we have you on our podcast. Genetic testing is out there. I'm a primary care doc. I do genetic testing, but I have patients who bring in their genetic testing from direct-to-consumer testing. And for most of us, I've been in practice 30 years, we are really sort of dumbfounded what to do about it. So I'm going to start pretty basic. Can you tell me what a genetic counselor is? Yes, absolutely. Well, a a genetic counselor is a member of the healthcare team who meets with patients and families to explain how genetic indications and genetic conditions may impact them. A genetic counselor may review a patient's medical history and reason for a referral. We also obtain detailed family history, often asking about three generations of the family to really help us in a risk assessment. So genetic counselors will also provide education about genetic conditions, risks and the genetic testing process. They can help with decision-making and informed consent to make sure patients feel comfortable and understand the genetic testing process and how it impacts families. So overall, um, you know, we are part of the healthcare team. We're here to help patients and we're here to help patients really navigate the complex and sometimes confusing world of genetics like you do an awful lot and I, I should have one of you next to me with every patient interaction. So I've got a couple of real life examples where I've had patients and I've encouraged them to go to a genetics counselor. I've had patients who come in with direct to consumer testing that show, for instance, oh, um, I may have APOE or I may test positive for one of the breast cancer genes and I'm worried. So that's a person I might send to you. And uh, for instance, I had a patient who tested positive for BRCA2. 
And I said, you know, I'm not sure what to do with it, but I do know that the direct-to-consumer tests don't tell the whole story. So when it comes to testing for breast cancers or other cancers with the direct-to-consumer testing, how can you help a primary care doctor and their patients when I send them to you? So that that brings up, you know, that's a great question. And I think it, it highlights complexity um, of genetic testing. It also highlights the limitations and differences and nuances that are involved with genetic testing. So direct-to-consumer testing has really exploded in the past couple of years. There's a variety of different test options that are out there. Most of these are screening tests at best, meaning that they are developed um, to look for certain variants in a gene, certain hotspots, um, or different risk alleles or traits that individuals may have. So if a, a patient presents to primary care and has abnormalities on a direct-to-consumer report, there is absolutely an opportunity for that patient to be referred to a genetic counselor. The genetic counselor can review the, the test report, and oftentimes additional validation is needed of that particular result. So if something is found and may be significant through direct-to-consumer testing, we usually want to follow it up with a clinically validated test to confirm that it's real, because there are numbers of cases out there in publications that show discrepancies between certain direct-to-consumer tests, raw data that patients may be looking at, compared to a, um, a validated clinical assay. So that's, that's one piece. So if the testing is abnormal, patients should be referred. But I think what the other scenario here is that's actually far more prevalent is that a patient has a negative or normal direct-to-consumer test. They have a family history of breast cancer. They're concerned about that family history of breast cancer. And they're reassured by their negative direct-to-consumer test. And that's inaccurate. And that's something that I think is really important for um, all healthcare providers to know is that direct-to-consumer testing um, is a supplemental test. It's more like a recreational test that provides some information to patients and their families, but it should not replace a diagnostic clinical grade test when a patient has a personal or family history of any sort of disease, including hereditary cancer. You took the question right out of my mouth because you're right. I often get that where someone has a family history and they do a test and it's negative and it's sort of one of those looks of relief that, wow, I'm off the hook. And so those individuals, is that, should I be sending those individuals to you? And in particular, if they know that they have a mom or a sister with a known variant of, let's say, breast cancer, BRCA1 or BRCA2, and they do the, the in essence, home test and it's negative, is that person who would benefit from a visit with a genetic counselor? Absolutely. I think the scenario that you just described is a scenario that, you know, we know that they're with certain genes, um, like um, genes that are associated with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. They can have thousands of different types of variants that cause disease. And oftentimes these variants may be private or unique to certain families. And so the direct-to-consumer labs out there are really looking for those very common variants, often variants that are shared 
in certain ethnic backgrounds like Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. So a, a family member could have had a diagnostic grade genetic test. They could have found a specific variant in the BRCA1 gene. And if a patient is using a direct-to-consumer test to rule in or rule out that variant, it may not do that job because oftentimes these direct-to-consumer tests might only be looking at the three most common Ashkenazi Jewish variants or maybe looking at five or 10 variants, not the thousands that we know exist in a gene. Um, so I think in the situation where a patient has a family history of a known genetic disorder, those patients should always be referred um, to a genetics provider to evaluate the testing that they've had done and potentially order additional testing uh, to really rule in or rule out that diagnosis for that particular individual. You now we're talking about testing, but you, you said something really interesting about family history. So those of us who are seeing the patient first, you know, we have a very inexpensive genetic test, which is to get a good family history. So what are the kind of questions that might help me or my colleagues find out and really sort of raise our index of suspicion of people that maybe even before we do any genetic tests, we should send to you because maybe there is something there that we do need to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. So there are a variety of red flags that we think about in family history. Now, certainly genetic counselors, this is part of our graduate training where we um, learn to take a really detailed family history and ask a lot of questions that help us narrow in on appropriate genetic test for a patient. But I think there's some higher level red flags that I like all providers to think about when talking with patients and families. So one of the first red flags that I'll bring up is thinking about early onset cancer. And this is cancer that we generally define as 50s or age 50 and younger. And that generally is cancer in the patient themselves or a really close relative. So, you know, if you have a, a younger female patient and she describes that her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at 45, that's a red flag for a hereditary component in that family in the absence of anything else. Even just one family member with that really early onset cancer can be concerning. Now, certain cancers are more likely to be hereditary than others. So if we look at something like a breast cancer, maybe in comparison to a lung cancer or a skin cancer, there are differences there. But as we think about cancers in general, seeing those in young individuals without risk factors is a red flag. Now, taking that a step further, we also think about family history. So if you are talking with a patient and that patient sitting in front of you is healthy, but maybe there's a family history of health issues, that's also another red flag. And I usually say a family history where we see multiple generations of individuals that are affected with the same disease. Now, there are some diseases out there that we think are common health problems, something that you all probably hear in your practices where, you know, maybe there's a family history of obesity, family history of diabetes or asthma or allergies. Most of the time, we think these common health problems are multifactorial, that there isn't one specific etiology. But if you think about something like multiple women in a family with breast cancer, that's a red flag. If we think about 
related health problems. Certain health problems tend to cluster together, like breast and ovarian cancer or colon and endometrial cancer. Seeing things like high cholesterol, premature high cholesterol, and high cholesterol that has kind of a fingerprint of having a very elevated LDL greater than 190, along with premature heart disease or early heart attacks in a family. Those, those are additional red flags. And then beyond that, it could also be a presentation of a rarer unusual disease. So most people are familiar with hearing the high cholesterol or the cancer, but I'd also encourage individuals to have their listening ears on for more rare presentations of disease in the family. And an example would be multiple relatives with pulmonary issues, like multiple individuals with interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis. That would be very unusual to see multiple people in that family and is a, is a huge red flag for a hereditary component. So again, I, I would encourage that, that rare disease. There are thousands of genetic conditions, so we can't list every single phenotype, nor can, can anybody know all of those symptoms. But I think, again, that aspect of if there is something unusual and it's something that you that maybe you bring a question to to say, why are there multiple people in the family with this same rare disease? That's another cue to refer those patients on. Now, everything that I just listed, this could encompass both in the pediatric and adult setting. Most pediatric conditions I think have a better rate of being picked up by providers and being passed along to genetics. We do see that adult onset genetic conditions may be underdiagnosed or they are often, you know, assumed to be multifactorial or idiopathic in a family. You know, so that I think it encompasses both adults and peds. Now there are a couple of other things on the list that I think about as red flags as well. So thinking about the patient sitting in front of you, if they are describing a, a history or have had an evaluation for an early onset, unexplained disease. So again, you know, you're talking with a patient that has interstitial lung disease and they're in their 30s and they have no explanation as to why they would have that, that particular disease. That would be something to think about. Children with very early onset inflammatory bowel disease, we do know there's a higher contribution of a hereditary component in that setting. Family history of a genetic disorder, I think we already touched on that with one of the other questions, but if there is any sort of family history of a genetic condition, especially a genetic condition that we think about being passed down from generation to generation, hereditary cancer, Marfan syndrome, some of these types of conditions, familial hypercholesterolemia, any of these known genetic disorders in a family, even if it's an aunt or an uncle, I, I encourage a referral on so that patient can have additional education and understand their risk. I think this can be taken even further when we think about other family history factors. So in general, if we see if there's a pattern of individuals with developmental delay, birth defects, congenital anomalies, that's a red flag. If a female has had multiple pregnancy losses, so more than three pregnancy losses is also a red flag for a chromosomal abnormality like a translocation. And then if we extend past this and think about patients and treatment, if we know there's a history of medication interactions or efficacy issues, or maybe significant adverse events that a patient describes for themselves or a family member passing away from anesthesia, for example, 
that might be another red flag. And then in a, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with the reproductive setting of, you know, if, if you're working with younger patients of reproductive age, carrier testing is always on the table and an option. And it's usually better to do for a patient and their partner prior to a pregnancy. Genetic counselors can help with that process. There are genetic testing options available for individuals during a pregnancy. And then individuals that are struggling with infertility or may have a desire to do pre-implantation genetic testing. Those are also uh, areas where a genetic, a genetic a referral to a genetic counselor can be helpful. It sounds like you're the family medicine doctor of genetics from birth to death. Yes. <laughs> so I think some of the barriers for some patients is the issue of cost. And obviously there's differences depending on tests, but often one of the questions becomes, do I get a test for a gene or do I get a panel of tests? And I I don't know what you can tell the audience about what do we do with costs? You know, I know, and, and what can you say about insurance coverage for testing? That's I'm sure variable, highly variable by insurance, highly variable by state, but are there some general concepts or general ideas that that you can talk about? Mm-hmm. So genetic testing is expanding. You know, we're now at a place where genome sequencing is something that has been implemented. Um, typically, genome sequencing is is ordered under the guidance of a geneticist and and thorough counseling with a genetic counselor to really understand the implications and informed consent aspects that go along with such a big test where there could be many different possibilities for results. However, I will say that insurance, like other aspects with healthcare, is slow to catch up with coverage for genetic testing. I will say, you know, we've seen in the past decade increased coverage, especially for panel testing. So I wish we were at a place where genome sequencing was affordable for everybody and that this was something that, you know, everybody could have access to genome sequencing and we had the ability for providers to do this. However, that that's not quite the case. And so I think panel testing is still an option that is available. So panel testing generally is looking at a number of genes related to what we call a phenotype. And so a phenotype could be something like interstitial lung disease. And we know that there may be 50 genes that are associated with various hereditary forms of lung disease or genetic forms of diabetes or heart disease. And so most of the time we are narrowing in and focusing on genetic test panels. And that's where we see the best insurance coverage and medical necessity. Many health insurance companies are starting to develop specific criteria for panel-based testing. Some insurance companies are requiring pre-test genetic counseling prior to covering genetic testing and, and partially to determine appropriateness of testing, but to ensure patients are fully informed of the implications of genetic testing as well. And so I think, um, it is quite variable. It is becoming more and more favorable, especially we see quite good coverage for genetic testing for pediatric genetic diseases. And then we're seeing seeing additional coverage for adult onset diseases, especially with those where there may be treatment or medical decision-making that can be impacted by the genetic test itself. 
I will say also we're seeing prices come down. So most laboratories do have options for the laboratory to assist with insurance pre-authorization. So many commercial labs offer this for internal testing at an institution. Institutions may have teams available that can assist a patient with pre-authorization. Um, so they understand what is covered. And then we also see the, the out-of-pocket costs for patients being lower. Often labs will offer self-pay prices, which may be um, several hundred dollars com in comparison to thousands of dollars that it used to be years ago. So you mentioned the idea of panel testing versus full genome. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the difference? Because I think for most of us, we think about panels as a yes or no kind of switch, but the full genome and what's the difference and how is one perhaps more useful than the other? Both tests have benefits and limitations. And I think we are trying to get to a place where more individuals have access to genome sequencing, because the piece with panel testing is that when ordering panel testing, a panel test is a panel of genes related to a specific indication. And so oftentimes we are looking at a targeted list of genes based on a specific health problem, but sometimes patients have multiple health issues. And sometimes we find that patients are diagnosed with multiple genetic diseases. Unless multiple genetic panels are ordered, it may not assess the entire phenotype that that patient has. Now, again, panel testing oftentimes if they have a genetic disorder, they usually only have one genetic disorder. And so if we have a strong understanding of the patient's phenotype, then we can narrow in on a lower cost panel. And typically this type of panel is very well supplemented from a technology standpoint to pick up complex variants that may exist in that small set of genes associated with the phenotype, lower cost, and quicker turnaround time to get those test results back. So those are all benefits that we think about with panel-based testing. Now, genome sequencing is, is the opposite approach. You know, one of the ways that I would describe this type of sequencing to patients is like a fishing expedition. We were casting a net, we were sequencing the, the genome, thousands of genes at once, and seeing what we identified from that list. And we didn't always know what we were going to find. And so I think it's the opposite approach of genome sequencing. We really are looking at the genomic material of a patient. And while we may have a phenotype in mind and hope to find a genetic diagnosis related to that, there could be other things that we find. We may have incidental findings where we don't find a cause for the patient's symptoms, but maybe we find something else like a risk for familial hypercholesterolemia or hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. I think this also opens up ethical questions too about genetic testing and genome sequencing in children and finding adult onset conditions that maybe again are not related to the phenotype. So genome sequencing, there's a lot of promise that we have access to all of this information and that we may have the ability to moving forward, meet the patient where they're at as, as they age as they have more health problems, we may have that genomic data available to have a better understanding of those health problems and how to manage them moving forward. It sounds like with the uh, genomic sequencing, be careful what you ask for. You might get more information than you really wanted to know. 
Right. We've had a podcast previously that talked a bit about sort of the ethical and legal implications. When you give a patient counseling and they get genetic tests, presumably they're going to want to know the results. But can patients, do patients ever say, I don't want to know the results after you go through the whole thing? Well, when you say go through the whole thing, like go through, actually order the genetic testing or when you, we go through the education and, and they may decline at the end. I think I mean that you've done the counseling. You've said, yes, you may be at risk. We do advise you consider the testing and they get the tests. The results come back and maybe they don't want to talk about the results or don't want to deal with the results. Do those individuals come back to see you? Usually we try to do heavy counseling upfront about genetic testing. And I think that's also, you know, a key component here is that, that I think genetic counseling, I'm biased as a genetic counselor myself, but I do think it is really important for patients, especially as we talk about larger scale genetic testing um, that patients are going through that informed consent process of really understanding what is being tested what types of results could come back, the uncertainty and ambiguity that can be associated with genetic testing, and, and how test results may or may not impact their medical care in, in the future. And we try to explore all of those components with patients so that they have a full understanding and appreciation of what they may be embarking on if they do choose to move forward with genetic testing. I will say most patients, you know, as they move through this process. And if they've had genetic counseling, they may pause before moving forward with genetic testing. So some of the, the limitations that we bring up may cause them to pause and choose not to move forward with genetic testing. However, you know, I think with genetic test results, they are no different than any other sort of medical result. And so this is something that if a patient moves forward with genetic testing, we can't withhold genetic test results from the medical record, just like we can't withhold labs or imaging that's performed. So legally, these types of test results must go, any clinical result that is ordered must go into the medical record. We do our best as genetics providers to contact patients. Most patients, when they have an abnormal test result, want to talk to us. They want to understand now more so, what does the result mean? What is the natural history and recurrence risk for themselves and for their family members? So we don't have too much of a challenge with attrition um, after a patient has gotten a, a test result. But that doesn't mean that there aren't issues with coping with that test result and understanding what that result means um, for themselves and, and how that can impact their family. We do have some patients that, you know, just like in other aspects of healthcare, we can't get a hold of them. And that's something that generally we're writing a summary of what the test results show, what it means for the patient. We're trying to reach out to their primary care provider and let them know what was identified through the genetic testing process. So again, there may be that opportunity for the primary care provider to explore this new diagnosis with the patient and help support them. Working at the Mayo Clinic, of course, I'm I'm blessed to have individuals like you who I can call up or send patients to. But I know for many people, they don't have the luxury of a genetics counselor, perhaps in their clinic or within 100 miles. So what advice would you give to my colleagues out 
in the periphery there who have patients who they would like to refer to a genetics counselor or for patients who would like to get some genetics counseling, what can those individuals do to get the kind of valuable information that you can share or someone with your training can share with them before they either embark in getting genetic testing or when they try to interpret the testing they may have already gotten? Well, the, the first layer of advice that I would give would be to, to understand local resources. You know, every healthcare system is different. Some healthcare systems do have genetic counselors. Most larger medical institutions will have genetic counselors or genetics providers like a geneticist on staff that's either embedded in a, in a specialty department like oncology or pediatrics or larger institutions may have a, a genetics department that is its own standalone department like we have here at Mayo Clinic. But for those smaller institutions that don't have genetic counselors at their institution, it's still possible that they may have access to genetics resources. They may be able to refer a patient to a, a larger tertiary center that is nearby a regional or a regional center that maybe is within driving distance. For that particular patient. So I think it's it's important to understand, you know, what those local nearby surrounding genetics resources are. Most states will have a genetics organization where there are resources that are listed for that specific state. So that might be um, through a, a state's health department where they have genetics resources, or there, there may be nonprofit genetic counseling or overall genetics organizations that have that information. Other aspects that are available is telemedicine. So there are multiple reputable genetic counseling telemedicine organizations that exist that providers can work with or patients themselves even can contact directly where they can speak with a genetic counselor from the comfort of their home. That genetic counselor is licensed in the state that they are in, and that genetic counselor can provide education as well as the genetic test facilitation support, both on the front end and back end, and then usually can work directly with the primary care provider to share the information from that genetic testing process. So I think there's there's local resources, there's referring patients to a local or regional genetics practice, and then there's also telemedicine opportunities um, that exist out there. Well, it sounds like there are multiple ways that we can actually help our patients. And this is really, I think, a key element when we start to think about how do we incorporate genetics, genetics information, and genetics counseling to really start to individualize the care of patients. I mean, we talked a little bit about individual genes, but then you talked about other conditions where genetics probably play a role that we are not yet recognizing. Jennifer, what would be the two or three most important messages that you would like to leave our audience with today as we sort of wrap up? Well, I, I would say that that genetics is here. Genetics in the past has always been thought about as a rare disease subspecialty, but we're we're understanding that genetics more and more is playing a role even in common diseases that are being seen in primary care practices. And so I think we're only going to continue to see an expansion of genetics and genetics that will be interwoven into all medical practices. So with that being said, I think it's important that uh, primary care providers are aware that, that genetic counselors are here to help. We're here to educate patients. We're here to help with genetic testing. 
and that certainly we want to see the patients where there's a high likelihood of a hereditary component. But at the same time, we're also happy to see patients and, and help provide reassurance and education why they may be low risk and may not need genetic testing. So I think I would end with that the genetics practice, we very much see this continuing to grow and evolve. Patients have a greater awareness and appetite for genetic information as well. So I, I think it's important for practices to think about, you know, some of the resources that they can develop internally to help with patient questions and where they can route patients who have genetic concerns moving forward for the future. Terrific. Well, today we've been talking about navigating the genetic testing world, the role of a genetics counselor with Jennifer Kempinen. Thank you for your time, Jennifer. Thank you. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See, your genes really matter.